protest. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I am Renita Malhotra Hora. U.S. stocks retreated as energy shares led losses amid a drop in oil prices. Yelp posted strong earnings, but shares fell on low sales expectations for Q4. Ottawa police are searching gunmen, uh, are searching for gunmen after an attack at the Canadian Parliament. And China's preliminary manufacturing PMI is to be released later this morning. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll look at how Australian inflation numbers and Japan's trade balance are reinforcing the trend of slowing global GDP and disinflation. Rajiv Biswas, an IHS global economist, will join us to discuss this. Then Bloomberg reporter Freddie Balfour opines on what lies ahead for the umbrella movement. Finally, a look at the rise of Indian corporate bond funds with Nandkumar Surti of JP Morgan Asset Management India. My co-host this morning is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Manita. So let's take a look at the top stories uh, for today. The S&P 500 snapped a four-day winning streak after modest early morning gains faded, leaving U.S. stock averages in the red. And news of shots fired at the Canadian Parliament building in Ottawa might have contributed to some of the market jitters. The S&P 500 slipped 14 points to 1,927. The Dow dragged down by declines in Boeing, lost 153 points to 16,461. And the Nasdaq fell 36 points to 4,382. The U.S. 10-year Treasury note uh, yields ticked up four basis points to 2.22%. In earnings, you, in earnings news, excuse me, Yelp posted its second consecutive quarterly profit and exceeded analysts' forecasts. But that didn't stop the local businesses' website shares from sliding down more than 14% in after-hours trading. Yelp reported a net income of $3.6 million, or $0.05 cents per share, compared to a net loss of $2.3 million, or $0.04 cents per share, in the same period last year. But investors reacted to a lower-than-expected fourth quarter sales outlook, which the company projects to come in between 107 and $108 million. Uh, and of course, this contrasts with the average estimate of $111 million from 34 analysts polled by Yahoo. And speaking of Yahoo, despite its quarterly earnings beat, uh, industry experts are saying that things don't look so good for the company. Deborah Bouchard is an analyst at Stansbury Research, and she says that the company is working five years behind tech. You know, there's that hockey analogy that you play to where the puck is going to be, not where it's at. And I feel that Yahoo is playing where the puck is at. They're so focused on ads right now. And really, ads were the story five years ago. That's not really where it's at now. And you have to look ahead to where the business is going to be five years from now. And that's not what they're doing. We, we paid a billion dollars for Tumblr. And, oh, yeah, they're going to make $100 million next year. Okay, well... That means, what, that's going to take them 10 years to make any money off of Tumblr? You're looking at Google that has YouTube. You're looking at Facebook that has Instagram, WhatsApp. What have they gotten? Tumblr. So, Peter, what do you make of uh, these earnings reports? 
Well, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, in, in the tech, se- tech sector, a lot, a lot of people are focusing on how well companies are embracing mobile. That's, the, that, that, that's really the thing, and that's where people are trying to see where the potential for revenue growth is coming. In some of the more industrial um, sectors, we've seen uh, a string of rather disappointing results from companies like um, Coca-Cola, from McDonald's, from IBM. So it's a very, very mixed bag um, at the it moment. It is indeed. I'd like to you know, sort of take the example of Yelp uh, for a moment. Um, what I'm trying to say is a lot of us are lay investors, right? We are completely dependent upon what analysts say, mm-hmm. okay? And what they say really dictates the way the stock prices go. But, you know, certainly in a company like Yelp, I mean, it's gone from being a startup, a Silicon Valley startup, to now it's listed. Um, you know, it's made losses. Now it's making profits. You know, yet, and it beat its estimates, mm-hmm. yet the analysts, you know, don't like that, mm-hmm. say something, and the stock price drops. My question, Peter, is how much do these analysts really know about what is going on inside the company to, to, to be able to make that call? Well, if you want to really know what's going on inside the company, you should really ignore some of these analysts' sort of forward guidance on EPS because their guidance always gets revised down anyway. If it you look does. At, uh, if, if you look at, you know, the, where we are at the moment in terms of third quarter EPS, it's much lower than it was three months ago. So, you know, maybe one of the better indications of, of what's going on is to look at insider selling. In other words, what are company executives doing with their own shares? Are they buying them? Are they selling them? You know, these are the directors of the companies, the CEOs and the chairman. Insider selling is at an all-time high now. So a lot of company directors are selling their own shares, which means they don't have a lot of confidence at the moment in either the level of their current stock price or um, the, the forward earnings potential of the companies. So, Peter, but why are the markets not seeing this? Well, in, in some ways, the markets are. I mean, if you look at the volatility in the market, it, it, it is there. We've had this, um, we've had three days in a row now where the VIX index, the, the fear gauge, if you like, moved down more than 10%. Three days in a row. That's the first time that's ever happened since the, the VIX was created. Today, the VIX index was up 13.6%. Mm, so there's there a, a, a lot of volatility going on um, in the markets. And it comes back to, um, you know, market sentiment is slowly sort of turning. And, and that's partly because everything at the moment people are really looking at is the Fed. What is the Fed going to do? Yeah. Is it going to withdraw QE? And the markets have been really juiced up on monetary stimulus from the central banks. And the big concern is what is going to happen when that is withdrawn? And there's a very, very strong correlation between the performance of the S&P 500 and the size of the Fed balance sheet. Every time they've withdrawn QE, the markets have fallen. Absolutely. And it's not just the Fed. I mean, it's this whole uh, idea of a global macroeconomic slowdown. I mean, you've got Europe slipping into recession, facing deflationary pressure. You've got Japan, which is stalled as investors, are beginning to question whether Abenomics is working or not. Yes. Um, China <laughs> is slowing, even though the GDP print is better than expected. And then you've got Australian inflation numbers and Japan's trade balance, which reinforce, you know, everything that we're talking about. Um, let's bring in Rajiv Biswa. Was an IHS global economist. He joins us now by phone. Good morning, Rajiv. Good morning. So, Rajiv, earlier this month, uh, the IMF's Christine Lagarde described the global outlook as beset by risks. I think those were her exact words. And then shortly after that, the, the agency downgraded its global forecasts. Is the global economy stuck in low gear or are we not even there yet? I think we are facing a you know, fragile economic outlook. Uh, I think that clearly the situation in the Eurozone 
has deteriorated in recent months. Uh, and in Japan, the momentum um, of Abenomics is certainly under pressure after the sales tax hike. We're seeing relatively weak household consumption, which is not a surprise. But I think the real problem in Japan is that Abe's third arrow hasn't really materialized in terms of structural economic reforms. And so we're not expecting much growth momentum in Japan next year, probably in the order of just about 1% growth in Japan. Um, and in the Eurozone, I think if growth can go over 1% next year, that would be quite a good outcome the way things are looking right now. So Rajiv, can, can the Asian economies decouple um, from what's going on in the rest of the world? Can they sort of maybe rely more on each other and, and somehow insulate themselves from the effects of what's going on in the global economy outside of Asia? I don't think Asia can decouple, but what we have seen over the last decade is that the rising importance of China in world GDP has already created a greater intra-Asian momentum. Uh, much of the growth momentum in Asia in the last 10 years has been uh, due to China's rapid economic growth. And I think if China can still grow at about 7% per year, as we're forecasting for next year, um, then that at least would provide some kind of underpinning for Asia. I think what's also going to be helpful is the U.S., because the U.S. is the one economy that still looks relatively good, um, even though you know the Fed has pretty much and tapered away its QE program now, and we expect that will be completely wound down um, in very short, in a very mm -hmm. near future. Um, but nevertheless, there's a lot of positives still taking place in the U.S. economy. So it's the U.S. and China in particular, which we think will keep, uh, you know, external demand quite strong in for Asian exports. Okay, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Rajiv Biswas, IHS Global Economist. So uh, speaking about... Uh uh, the global economy, I mean, and oil prices dropping. Brent crude is currently at $84.71. Gold is at $1,244 per ounce. And things to look out for today, China's preliminary manufacturing PMI for October and Amazon's earnings, of course. Well, in local news, the Secretary for Financial Services, Casey Chan, says that prep work for the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect has begun. It has been progressing well, although an official date to launch the scheme is still to be confirmed. He was responding to lawmakers' questions about whether the Occupy protests had delayed the launch date. Speaking through an interpreter, Mr. Chan said that he did not see any direct impact on the scheme by the protests, but he acknowledged the market's concerns. The market has got a lot of speculations as to delay. I can only tell you that our preparation work has been progressing well and the uh, launching of Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Exchange may not be directly related uh, to Occupy Central or things we have seen happening on the streets, but we can appreciate worries of the market. The current situation in our local market has caused concern of international players. Some market participants are worried that if the situation in Hong Kong should continue, uh, they, their confidence in investing in Hong Kong might be undermined. We appreciate their concerns, so we hope that the situation can stabilize. The 
time is now 8.14 a.m. and Hong Kong stocks are beating every other developed market in the world this month as lower valuation shelters shares from a global sell-off and, of course, the city's worst political unrest since the 60s. The MSCI HK index rallied 3% in October right through yesterday, the most among 23 developed markets by the MSCI. So what kind of economics can we expect with the continuation of the umbrella movement? Chris Oliver has the story. Over to you, Chris. Chief Executive C.Y. Lung has come under fire for saying that giving more voice to the city's poor would lead to policies unfavorable to big business. The comments were perceived as elitist and have drawn attention to issues such as the city's growing rich-poor divide. Uh, we're joined now in the program by Frederick Balfour. He's a reporter at large at Bloomberg. Good morning, Frederick. Good morning, Chris. So, uh, Chief Executive, he has, uh, he has a point saying that his mandate is broadly represented rather than numerically representative. What do, what do you make of that? Well, I, I had a chance to interview him two days ago, um, the day after he made those remarks, saying that if you allow everyone um, a say in, in who the, in nominating the the candidates for the chief executive, that that would lead to some sort of populist policies, and that would be n- unpopular with the big business. Um, when I asked him to elaborate, instead of perhaps backpedaling on this because clearly these were very elitist uh, comments, he proceeded to read from the transcript of the interview that took place the day before. So with 24 hours uh, to to rethink his, his position, all he did was reiterate it. Um, I think there's a couple of things to look at. I was in Mong Kok on Saturday night, the day after, about 24 hours after the clash uh, uh, clashes of, of, of Friday evening, and I was amazed that all the jewelry shops were open and they were doing booming business. Now, who controls the biggest jewelry uh, chain? It's the, the Chung family, um, billionaire family. So they don't even seem to be hurting from this. So I even think his argument is somewhat fallacious. Um, as was just pointed out, the Hong Kong stocks have actually outperformed the other major indexes everywhere in the world. So it's a bit of a red herring. But then uh, he's looking for other scapegoats he he said to us that he's quite certain that there are these uh, unnamed foreign influences, i.e. we should be looking under our beds for this CIA, when I pressed him and said, what evidence do you have and what countries are you pointing the finger at, he, he refused to say anything. So, Frederick, we've had some um, discussions this week, which we saw on television between the students and between some representatives of the government. When you hear comments like this from the CEO of Hong Kong, which sort of suggests that he doesn't really understand certainly the economic concerns of a large proportion of the of of the population. How is it possible for these discussions to lead to anything meaningful when one side doesn't really appear to understand the the, the real concerns that, that a lot of people have in this country? Well, I think it's true that the chief executive doesn't understand or is just unwilling to acknowledge these problems, but that's not to say that the negotiators representing the government on the other side of the table aren't cognizant. You do have civil servants who are, you know, have been doing this for a long time, who are in touch. They don't necessarily go to dinner at the Hong Kong Club with, with the the tycoons. Uh, I think there is some room. Clearly, there is a huge problem of the rich-poor divide here. It's getting worse. Housing is a, is a really hot-button issue. The government has, in the last 18 to 24 months, taken all sorts of measures to try to tamp down prices. Unfortunately, it's a flawed policy because all it's done is created 
um, an artificial slowdown in demand. There's so much pent-up demand, um, and no one is actually willing to sell their houses. That's one part. But in terms of also creating a more comprehensive housing policy, such as you have in Singapore, where 80% of the people live in public housing, and most of those people actually own their houses. They don't rent them. One one analyst that appeared on the program recently said that when he looked into his crystal ball, he foresaw... Uh, policies that would actually be more uh, pro-socialist uh, and actually bring some of the agenda backburners, such as competition law, uh, forward. Do you see that as an inevitable consequence of the tensions now? No, I don't. I mean, I think if you... <laughs> we were talking about this in the office yesterday. In what other country or jurisdiction in the world where would you have the largest airline by the second largest airline, <laughs> Cathay and, and Dragon? Um the issue of competition at the top isn't going to make any difference. The real question here is the trickle-down effect. Hong Kong is growing, but it's not benefiting the people at the bottom end of the pyramid. And that's why you've got irate taxi drivers and, and minibus drivers and students and young people who just feel like no matter how hard they work in this city, they're not going to get ahead. And when you have that level of frustration, it's going to spill out onto the streets. Just a quick point here, Frederick. Uh, we're now entering our fifth weekend of street and traffic disruptions. Uh, the students have met with the government. Do you see any hope of a resolution? Well, I think that it depends how these injunctions play out. There are now three injunctions against the stu- the, uh, the occupiers, including one by Citic, the, the biggest mainland bank-backed uh, company. They have about two weeks to respond. So this notion that uh, I think yesterday some people tried to clear the barricades saying they were helping out the bailiffs. Well, the bailiffs have no legal um, justification for even acting yet. So we'll have to wait, I think, at least and see. The other thing is that the chief executive said that the public is growing wary, is growing, uh, patience is growing thin. What he's really saying is that uh, patience is growing thin in Beijing. But the support for the for the occupiers appears to be growing. They seem to be getting more sympathy. If you look at the latest sort of surveys, they seem to show that, that the public is 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 more supportive of, of of what they want. So, so what happens next? What what, what are the next steps? Well, I, I think first of all, the public is getting accustomed to this. Uh, I think you, that po- that poll ended uh, October sixteenth. We're now on the twenty third. Um, People are, are are actually starting to accept that this is a way of life. They've they've adapted, and I don't feel as though there's suddenly going to be an anti-occupy groundswell, and that's going to lead to confrontation. It's ultimately going to be the police that and the protesters who are facing off. Well, thank you very much. That's Frederick Balfour, a, a reporter at large at Bloomberg, and thank you, Chris. Before entering into an employment contract, you should clarify whether you're engaged as an employee or a self-employed person in order to avoid dispute later. If an employee considers changing his employment status to self-employed, he must consider the pros and cons involved, including any potential loss of employment rights and benefits. Know your employment status. Protect your rights and benefits. Labor Department Complaint Hotline, 2815-2200.
time is 8.22 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is open. It is down three-tenths of a percent to 15,088. Australia's ASX index is up just slightly to 5,375. And Seoul's Kospi is up 0.14%, uh, excuse me, down, down 0.14% to 1,934. Well, global fund managers are starting their first Indian corporate bond funds as credit risks drop uh, amid Prime Minister Modi's attempt to revive the economy. The Indian asset management arms of JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank are two such examples. But historically, there hasn't been a market for corporate bonds in India. I chatted with JP Morgan Asset Management India's CEO Nand Kumar Surti and asked him why this was the case. You know, plenty of reasons for that, Renita. Actually, uh, so if you look at it, uh, right, uh, historically, uh, interest rates have uh, swayed very uh, big time in India. So, you know, uh, in, in a month's time, interest rates could move by 100 to 300 basis points. You know, so when you're talking about that kind of swings, it's not exactly conducive for, uh, you know, secondary market trading for corporate bonds. Second reason being, you know, money market rates itself are very, very high. Uh, you know, so typically giving you 9%, 10%, 11% tax-free returns uh, bearing the last six months, you know, th- those were the kind of rates that were prevailing uh, for almost three to four-year periods till uh, 2013, and things have uh, calmed down a bit at the beginning of 2014. You know, so when money market gives you those kind of rates, it's not exactly conducive for development of uh, you know, corporate bond market and also lack of screen-based trading. So, you know, not many people are comfortable. There's counterparty risk, uh, you know, settlement risk kind of. So, you know, these are some of the reasons which historically have plagued the development of the corporate bond market. Nandu, has there also historically been a fear amongst investors of companies reneging on their debt? Not really, you know, so uh, it's a function of economic development in uh, overall, right? You know, so now things are on the uh, upswing so far as the economic development is concerned, kind of. Default rates have been reasonable in line or in line with what you would see the world over, kind of. You know, so and, and it's been more di- dictated by government policies rather than the corporates themselves. Uh, where, you know, businesses could go through a bit of a turmoil kind of, you know. So I don't think that, uh, you know, per se, credit itself has been a challenge uh, for investors. Obviously, you know, companies like yours are taking direct credit risk to bring corporate debt products to the market. What are you seeing that's different? It's predominantly driven by the fact that economic activity is picking up in general and, you know, investors are in search for higher yields which is, uh, you know, uh, making the corporate bond markets develop. You know, so if I have to put uh, this in numbers, uh, it it accounts for, uh, you know, asset management industry in India is currently around $160 billion. And over the course of last three years, uh, three years back, probably, you know, corporate bond market or the credit, that's the non-AAA portion, was near zero about three years back. That's about, uh, you know, 4% of the overall market. So about $7 billion is what, uh, you know, asset management companies run on the non-AAA book at this point of time. So it's gradually picking up. What is the appeal for the lay investor 
to invest in a bond fund rather than individual bond issuances? See, it's, uh, if you invest directly into the individual bond issuances, uh, issuances, one, you may not have the wherewithal to you know uh, do the credit analysis, right? You know, so of course there is the rating agencies which gives you uh, the rating. But there is that element uh, that, you know, we would bring in uh, when we are looking at the non-AAA or the AA plus, you know, not all AA's would be equivalent, uh, right? You know, economic conditions may not be the same for all all set of AA's. So that's the expertise which asset management companies bring in. Secondly, when you do direct investment, you know, unless you plan to hold it to maturity, uh, if you're looking to make some trading gains out of it, it's, it's a full-time activity which, you know, probably at the individual investor level is not exactly conducive. Third is, uh, you know, for individual investors, the coupon on the corporate bonds are taxable. Uh, though capital gains, uh, you know, after one year are, uh, you know, subject to lower tax rate compared to your marginal tax rate, the coupons on the uh, corporate bonds are taxable in the hands of individual investors, which is not the case with the mutual funds. You know, mutual funds are tax-free entities, our trading activities are tax-free. So to that extent, there is additional efficiency, uh, you know, that comes in when you invest through uh, asset management companies and then you can uh, you know when you take direct corporate bonds you are exposed to a single company credit when you buy the same product through a mutual fund product uh, you get a diversified portfolio of risk you get that professional expertise to manage your money uh, so risks are far lesser uh, when you invest through a mutual fund product how do you see the market for corporate debt evolving in India over the course of the next uh, five or so years? So it will definitely, as I said, you know, over the course of uh, last three years from zero, it's gone to about $7 billion just run by asset management companies kind of. So we definitely see and as economic conditions are improving at the margin in India, uh, this is one market that will continue to grow. Uh, where investors will look for, you know, taking some marginal additional risk uh, to generate that additional return uh, from their uh, portfolio. So this is something. And then once we move towards a screen-based trading, more and more FII players will also be in, uh, interested in the domestic, uh, you know, corporate bond market. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in three to five years' uh, time, the corporate bond market will be far better than what we are talking about today. That's Nand Kumar Surti, uh, CEO of JP Morgan Asset Management India. Well, Peter, any parting thoughts before we close today's show? Yes, next week the Fed meets and it will formally bring an end to QE. So unless it comes out and announces QE4, which in my view is highly unlikely, there's four very clear trends to watch for. Strong dollar, um, falling yields on government bonds, falling commodity prices and falling equity markets and a lot of volatility along the way. All right. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. A quick look at the numbers. Uh, currencies before we depart. Uh, the euro currently buys you $1.26. One US dollar buys you 107 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12.45 Hong Kong dollars. And for our listeners who might be celebrating the Diwali holiday today, happy Diwali to you all. Diwali, as you might know, is a South Asian holiday. It's the Festival of Lights and it celebrates the goddess Lakshmi who is all about wealth. So very appropriate for Money for Nothing. 
quick look at the weather forecast today. It will be uh, slightly cooler with a few rain patches at first. Sunny intervals during the day with a maximum temperature of around 28 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 81%. It's now time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. The Canadian capital, Ottawa, has been thrown into turmoil after a shootout in the Parliament building in which a gunman was killed. The man has been named as Michael Zihaf Bibo, a Canadian citizen. A short time earlier, a soldier guarding a nearby war memorial was shot dead. Many MPs, including cabinet members, were in the building during the attack and took cover after hearing the volleys of gunfire. MP Wei Yong found herself confined to her office. It hasn't just been the Parliament Hill itself, but also what we call the Parliamentary District, which is about a 15-minute walk of all the government buildings around Parliament Hill that has been locked down. And then uh, the, earlier this afternoon, it went beyond that even to all of the office towers and the businesses and the schools that were in the vicinity, including the University of Ottawa. Gradually, they've been released, and so these workers have been holed up all day. They've been told that they can go home. A U.S. federal jury has found four former security guards from the company Blackwater guilty of shooting dead 14 unarmed Iraqis and wounding more than a dozen others in Baghdad in 2007. One former guard was found guilty of first-degree murder and three others of voluntary manslaughter, as the BBC's Joanna Jolly reports from Washington. The seven-week trial focused on why four Blackwater security guards opened fire and threw grenades into a crowded Baghdad.